Good morning. That was a good one, right? Yeah, see, that worked the way it was supposed to. There we go, because I paid attention this morning. (laughs) Good morning, and welcome to your Daily Game Face. I'm Dr. Kimberly Lannon, and I'm here with my lovely producer, Lou Blasey. And it's Wednesday, May 27th. I actually had a momentary thought in the car this morning, driving here, going, I will not forget what day it is and the date. I'm like, I'm going to get it right on the money, because I always have to guess. But you don't have to worry about the date, because these are... I like doing that. It's like the Today Show. Today is... Wednesday, May 27th. <laughs> yeah, but in our business, we call these things evergreen. Oh. In other words, this will play anytime. So you don't want to attach a date. So to it's it. not May 27th. It's any day you want it any to be. Any day you're listening to it, that's what day it is. Yeah. 1924. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. Good, good. I'm so not, we have lots to talk not about. Not plotting today. to kill anybody right now? So. No, you don't want to kill no, anybody? No, not at the moment. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. So I always tell people it's only imaginary homicides, never real. So you can have them in your head. You just can't act on them. Yes. Because most people have them. (laughs) You just are not allowed to actually act on them. Yes. You know. So far, so good. Yeah. Passive homicidality. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, imaginary homicides. Parents have them all the time about their children. That's where I came up with the idea of calling them imaginary homicides because, you know, I hear about that a lot during the week. For years, it's not new. Yep. It's parents will come in and say, I'm going to kill my child. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that. Yep. And is that really true? And they're like, well, no, it's kind of just a fantasy in my <laughs> head. I'm like, well, that's good. Let's keep it in the box. Yep. Right? You can't act on it. So, yep. you know, having a good sense of humor about, you know, when your kids drive you crazy or, or people in general. Yep. Um, I have a, a, a funny uh, client. Um, she and I have sort of a running joke. We've known each other for a long time. And she, uh, it's a it's a longer story, but she sent me a, a little uh, picture of a T-shirt that has come out that basically says, I hate people, and it has cats on it. She knows I love cats. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. it's kind of like this, I love cats, you know, not people, and, she, and she's the same way, and she's like, that's your perfect T-shirt. Because <laughs> I always say, I love my clients, but, you know, people. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, but clients are people. I'm like, yes, but they're not all my clients, so I don't right. have to love all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Or as I say, I don't like people in general. I like people in particular, but I don't like well, people in general. There's Right. Well, yeah. it's, and it, I think it's really, you know, I mean, you hear so much of that, you know, and, and I try to have a good sense of humor about most things. Yep. Just because you have to. Sure. And so many people take themselves That's what keeps you from the homicidal thoughts. Too seriously. Being able to laugh at it to an extent. Exactly. Because yeah. you, you, hopefully, by and large, people aren't being serious. And, and it's just a way to, like, you know, vent, yep. have catharsis, let go of the, the angst and so on and so forth. But, no, I love people, most of them, or in particular, most of them. The difference is when, when people do aggravating things. Yes. Or dumb things. Right. I'll just go ahead and say it, dumb things. I can laugh at most of Non-intelligent. It. Non-intelligent things. Yes. Questionable things. <laughs> I can laugh at it if it's not affecting me. At the point right. where it's affecting me, then it's angry. Then not so funny or yeah. not so, right. Yeah. Exactly. You guys want to go do that? Go have fun. Well, it's, yeah. it's kind of like when people don't, you can tell that people aren't being mindful and self-aware. You know, the theme of, of humanity is yeah. that if they're not being mindful and self-aware, and in, in, in the grand scheme of social media occurring over the past decade, there's mm-hmm. been less and less awareness yep. and body awareness and body placement, you know, and, and I think that that becomes a... A stressor for a lot of people that you know you just don't see where you're going you don't know who's next to you you don't pay attention yep. and that becomes aggravating at times that's why i stay away from malls yeah that's one of the big jobs of parenting i've always i've always thought 
On the top five list of things is teaching kids that there's a world outside of them. Oh, yeah. Because kids tend to live in, it's all about me. Yes. And, you know, what I'm feeling and what I need at the particular time. It's all about my gratification. Right. Instant gratification. Yeah. Which is a good segue for one of the topics I was going to talk oh, about today. Good. Very good. You didn't even know that either. Very Almost good like job. I could do it for a living. You were, <laughs> you were reading my mind. Yeah. Um, so there has been a surge, and we've talked about a little bit of the trending stuff, and I like to always follow the trends and what's going on so that we can talk about it here. But um, trends and obviously, you know, domestic violence is up right now. Yep. Relapse and people drinking and drugging and doing all kinds of other things is up. Um, but also on a sort of similar but yet different front, um, one of the big trends that's happened over the two weeks, these last two weeks in psych work is um, the increase in – use of anti-anxiety medication. Oh, really? And and antidepressants. But Prescriptions are up? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so if threat generating is up, so 34%, um, it's jumped 34%, which is concerning from a holistic natural practitioner like myself that, you know, instant gratification, people want quick fixes. Yep. And, you know, it's one thing to have anxiety in general and kind of like, know that you've had it all your life or know that you've had it very situationally specific and that you're treating it with good therapy and exercise. And mm -hmm. I mean, there's, there's natural ways that actually your body knows how to manage anxiety without medication. Yeah. So it's a matter of knowing how to do what you should do or could do or can do um, and knowing those skills and tools. But the problem is, is because we're an instant gratification culture, um, as many are, that we go right to, well, what can fix it in 20 minutes? And yeah. and therefore, because, you know, it's not a lifelong anxiety, now we're having a very situationally specific anxiety disorder. Right. I'm sure that we'll come up with some interesting name like pandemic anxiety or, um, you know, something yeah. catchy. But it's cr increasing the likelihood of people pursuing benzodiazepines, which are things like Ativan, Clonopin, um, Xanax, you know, and the other names for them are lorazepam, clonazepam, right? So Prozac? So what? Prozac? Well, so Prozac is an antidepressant. So the benzos are the ones that are the quick fix anti-anxieties. So that's, those are the, you know, the Ativans, the Clonopin, Valium, you know, back oh. in the day, mommy's little helper. You I know, think my dog's been mis- Those were Valiums. I think what? my dog's been misprescribed. So, Oh well, so so Prozac is so Prozac is an antidepressant, but it has a, a secondary effect on anxiety. So it's like oh, a okay. mood regulator. So it's yep. really for a little bit of depression and or mood stabilization with some anxiety. It, it they it touches on yep. both. But if you just want pure anti-anxiety medication that helps just anxiety in general, doesn't really do anything to your mood per se, even though if you have less anxiety, your mood gets better. Right. People go to benzos. And the problem with benzos, although they work very quickly and they're great um, for that, they're addictive. Mm -hmm. And they're addictive to majority of people if you take them for a long period of time. They're not addictive to majority of people if it's short term, like once or twice. Um, the problem is, is that people take them and then it's so convenient and it happens so quickly yeah. um, to get fixed that it just keeps yeah. perpetuating itself. And so there's a danger on the side of using them for that and also for the danger of um, people who also, you know, imbibe with alcohol and you mix those two. That's, a, you know, it's a slippery slope because it's a, one of those drugs that you really shouldn't be doing that with. You shouldn't take, you know, a Valium per se, mm -hmm. you know, or, or an Ativan. You know, they don't usually use Valium, but it, I know a lot of people don't know what benzos are. So yep. it's in the same family as Ativan and Clonopin and Xanax. Um, but when you mix the two, if you mix 
alcohol, even a glass of wine or beer with Ativan, for instance, that makes, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an anti-anxiety with another chemical from the alcohol that's going to make your heart rate slow even further. Yeah. It's going to make you more like high, loopy, a yeah. little bit more because it's going to enhance the effect of the actual benzo and the anti-anxiety. And it's going to, it could have, you know, cardiac arrest. You could have, you know, you could end up falling asleep and not waking up. Um, you know, I mean, all yeah. kind. you know, it impairs driving. It impairs all kinds of things when you add them together, let alone on their own. So, so I'm not a big fan of quick fixer medications and medications are great. Um, for certain things, but I tend to use them as last ditch yep. efforts for people just because I'd rather have people have the skill. And well, then, I was going to say, learning to manage your anxiety is right. takes a long time. Right. We, we can't and, wait that long, right? Well, and they, so, you know, exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah. and so it's patience that's the instant gratification. We're so used to being able yeah. to do that, but there's many natural ways, even natural teas. There's other things in the environment that you can get that are as effective just they take a little longer to work because you have to work at it but i always remind people that you had to work at actually being anxious you had you you didn't all of a sudden wake up overnight right. and become it you'll tell me that i have clients tell me that all the time like i don't know why i'm anxious it i don't think about anything it just happens all not true but for the client yes that's true they feel that that and they think that absolutely they woke up one day and they were anxious or they have no idea they all truth to them but when you explore further you realize hmm it's usually a very specific thing that they're thinking about, usually. Yep. Um, sometimes it's a multiple of, of things, um, but we usually can really, really boil it down to one or two things. And um, it's usually chronic. Mm -hmm. It's usually got some theme and thread that's been a long time growing. There's usually a genetic stream in there as well. And then there's just lack of skill education and knowledge of how to actually manage one's threat generator and how to perceive things. Most of the time, we've talked about this lots of times since the show started, is most people who have an anxiety disorder and get panicky or have full-blown anxiety attacks or panic attacks, they have those because they have they have chroni chronically been able to accumulate enough time of fear and perception of fear and unknown and fear of all kinds of mm -hmm. things that they're not identifying and staying self-aware of that the only way that it makes it go away in their mind is if they take something like Ativan. But the problem with it, it's a Band-Aid. Yeah. And most medications are Band-Aids because if you don't do the work of understanding why, how, when, what it takes to change it, you're going to end up taking those medications. And when you stop taking them, guess what? The problem's still there. Yeah. It's never taken care of. The medication doesn't make you forget. So anxiety is a dual diagnosis like addiction. Well, so yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, you could look at it like that in a yeah. lot of ways, sure. And so, and so it's super important that people realize that you can take Ativan and Clonopin all day long, when I'm being facetious there, but you know, as, yeah. a, as a colloquial term, but it's not going to get to the root of the problem. And right. the root of the problem, that's why, you know, if a doc gives someone um, a benzo or something like a benzo for quick fix anxiety, they will often say, you must go see someone like me yep. and talk to them during this time you're on it because all of our knowledge is that medication works better with therapy. Therapy helps enhance the 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 process of the medication so that eventually the medication can be taken away. The whole point of taking something like that is so even an antidepressant isn't to be lifelong technically. Mm -hmm. That's not what the origination of it was for. So things like Prozac, uh, uh, Luvox, um, 
uh, oh, all of a sudden I've like lost all of them. Uh-huh. Um, Zoloft, Pristique, um, Lyrica, anything that falls in some family of antidepressants, um, that is super important that you understand that it's not supposed to be lifelong. It's supposed to help you feel either mood regulated better or feel that you have a better sense of self so that you can do the actual psychological work on the root problems so that eventually you can start backing the medication out. So if you're taking something like Celexa or Lexapro or Zoloft or, you know, any of those, those typical ones, those are supposed to be, you know, I mean, people are on them for a year or two many times, but I mean, clients I've known for 20 something years have been on them all that. And, you know, and why? Well, that helps. Also, clients haven't done a lot of the work. You know, they keep yep. doing the same yep. thing over and over, hoping for a different result. <laughs> you know, you give them, I give them homework. They come back, say, yeah, I tried it sort of. But, you know, yep. you have to, the better compliant a person is with their actual therapy, the less likely they have to be on medication. So medication becomes a crutch, which becomes addictive. And even though most most antidepressants aren't actually addictive, some are, but most aren't, Benzos are so you be either become physically, physiologically addicted, like to Ativan, Clonopin, and so on, or you become psychologically addicted to the yeah. need to have the fix there. That if I go off my Wellbutrin, if I go off my Zoloft, if I go off my Prozac, I'm going to not be able to manage because you haven't done the work to get the skill, you know. So yeah. and and that goes for you know if you're on if you're bipolar disorder and you're diagnosed with something like that and you're on on you know lithium and you're on all you still have to do the work. You still have to, you know, people think, "Oh, I'm on the medication and it makes it okay." You still have to do the work to know how to manage. What if there's no medication? What if you run out? I've had clients that run out and haven't been able to get it for 2 weeks. You go off some of those medications and it doesn't go well because their body starts changing, going through withdrawal or whatever it does, right. depending on the medication. And all of a sudden they don't have the skill to even know that that's happening or manage. Then they struggle. Right. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a med out there called Effexor. So it's venlafaxine and, you know, and it, and it moderates, you know, agitation, it's a mood regulator, but yep. it's highly addictive to many people in, in that the body, it's not addictive in the way that like um, alcohol or Ativan or Clonopin would be, but it's addictive in the way that the body becomes addicted. So if you even miss it for, like if you take it every day at 10 a.m. and you are late one day by a couple hours, you start getting headaches and your mm-hmm. body starts to get nauseous because wow. of that. Yeah. So if you don't know how to manage that and if you like say you've run out and CVS isn't open and you can't get it till the next day, you have to have some really good strategies to know I need to drink more water and I have to make sure I go out for exercise and eat a little bit different and don't eat. There's strategies, but people don't do that. They immediately get panicked right. and they go into the mode of, oh my God, something's wrong with me. Well, yes, yeah, something's wrong with you, but you have to know and have good self-awareness to know really what's going on because you're taking medication and people don't typically put them together. They go, oh no, something's wrong. And they don't go, oh, I didn't take my med today or I missed it by a couple hours. So right. it's super important to realize like what role that plays in your actual whole daily life and how it manages you. You're either going to manage your anxiety or manage your mood disorder and that's just going to be a helpful thing or it's going to be the thing that helps and that's it. And then that's a hard, that's a very hard road to go. And that's where people get stuck. And, you know, 20 years down the line, I get people in and they say, oh, I've been on this for, you know, 20 years. And, you know, like Prozac and Zoloft are weight gainers. And women especially, you know, they'll say, oh, five, 10 pounds, 30, 40 pounds on average in my anecdotal evidence and clients. Wow. 
And yeah. when you're on those meds, you can't lose weight on those. It's super hard because the way that the neurology of it, you know, the way it goes to the serotonin and dopamine and all the different neuroreceptors that it touches, it's super hard to lose the weight on those things. And so, but people are then become so um, addicted in a non-traditional sense. They're, yeah. they're so addicted mentally to having to have it that by the time that they've got 15, 20 years under their belt, they're very worried about changing it or getting to something that would be, you know, not a weight gain or getting them to a place that, you know, you know, cause it's such a, it's such a um, vicious cycle that, you know, in one case I have, or many cases actually, you know, someone that has a weight issue, a doc will put them on a medication that would be a weight gainer to make their mood better the mood gets better and then they still have a weight issue now they've got even more of a weight yeah. issue and it's so it's this constant cycle so i try to help people holistically and and to come away from the meds that are weight gainers or the way from the meds that are are traditionally like addicted addictive and then move people towards either less addictive Oh, you know, regular medically prescribed right. or holistic things within that natural integrative medical practice piece that I do just so that people have a healthier lifestyle because med dependency is huge. And the last thing we need to come out of like this pandemic is more and more people using 34% jump in anti-anxiety medications wow. is huge. 18% jump in, in antidepressants, Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro, Celexa, Wellbutin, all those. And and typically those are the ones that are the frontliners. That's a huge amount of increase. And I understand it, but as a practitioner and a lot of colleagues, we've been talking about this, We, they, as a practitioner in psych, we don't want people just doing that to fix the problem of like you're stressed at home, you're bored, you're, you don't know what to do, you're lonely. That is not a good fix yep. for any of that. The best fix... And, and even the APA, the head of the APA, American Psychiatric Association, and APA, American Psych, regular psych association came out, and the American um, Med Association coming out in this past week or two saying, get out and exercise. Eat a little better. Don't eat a lot of sugar. Don't eat too much, drink too much caffeine. Be careful of alcohol. But people don't want right. to, people don't want to change those things. Right. Yeah. But those are the, you know, your best fix, Especially your best when medicine a is around. exercise. Yeah. Anytime you have anxiety, if you go outside and do 15, 20 minutes of just a good, quick aerobic, you don't even, even if you're not used to doing that and you do like 10 jumping jacks, it immediately would change the dynamic in your body and the chemicals, the serotonin and the talking from the brain to the body, the body to the brain happens immediately. But people, that's effort. Yeah. Gosh, we don't want to put a lot of effort. It's so much easier just to put a pill in and say, yay, we're good. Right. You know, and, and benzos are immediate. And antidepressants take three, four, five, six, seven, eight weeks. And then by then you could already be away from all this. You don't have to take that to have stress. Right. You could do something different for yourself. But again, people are so stressed out. So I hate to see people going towards that right now. If you haven't been on anything all your life and all of a sudden you decide, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so stressed out. Call somebody, get an appointment with someone like me, get me, whatever, you know, listen to this podcast, go out and do some exercise, do something different, but don't go towards meds just to fix a transitional adjustment issue that's going on right now because it's going to get you in trouble down the line. Can you even get to these meds without going through a psychologist? Um, so you can. So primary care physicians are very um, particular. So they won't do the higher end, like some of the ones I was talking about. They won't do some of those just because they don't have the expertise in it, but they will do like the base. So the base ones are always like Ativan, Clonopin, 
for benzos and they not usually Xanax because that's usually too far out of scope and then they will do Zoloft and or Prozac. Now Zoloft and Prozac have been around forever. Mm -hmm. They are not typically the go-tos in psych as as a general rule for most of my colleagues and myself. We don't typically go to the old school ones. We go to the ones that are less side effects, less weight gainers, less sexual dysfunction, um, less dehydrating because they're anticholinergic. There's all kinds of side effects. We try to go to the other ones, but primary cares are are comfortable with those because those are the ones that they know. They've been Mm -hmm. around forever. They're very comfortable. They don't have any you know, liability essentially to them as as much. And so they'll go to those. They're more reluctant on an anti-anxiety. They'd rather you call someone like me. But on the other ones, they're more likely to do because the antidepressant like Zoloft, Prozac, um, Welbutrin, Lexapro, Selex, all those, they actually will touch on the anxiety piece because the better your mood gets, the better you're able to, the theory would be. And, you know, we see it physiologically. The theory is that you'd be able to better manage your anxiety. But what I see is people will come in on something like Zoloft and their anxiety will be through the roof is because they feel better mood-wise, but they don't know how to manage the anxiety. Right. So then they're still stuck. Right. So primary cares are able and willing to do that, but they won't go to the ones like they won't specialize. Like if someone came into me and said, well, what do you think? I'd be able to give a good recommendation and send them in the right direction kind of thing of like, well, probably this is better than that. Or, yeah. you you know, talk to my other colleague who will say, let's do this. And, you know, so we, we collaborate a little bit more and integrate something that's more fit as opposed to generalize like oh you feel depressed you ch-, you know there's the checklist the depression checklist oh you fit that let's just put you on the general one that we all use and yeah well but the person's already overweight or the person already has a sexual dysfunction or the person already has an anxiety piece because some of those actually increase anxiety so it's just in, yeah. in primary cares or general practitioners they don't realize those pieces whereas i've had extra training, obviously, in that and know right. the neurological and the neuropsychopharmological nature of these medications. And I teach about it in my in my college class. So the and, and or being able to go out on that limb and be like, well, that's probably going to increase your anxiety. Or, you know, it's like people that come and say, oh, I'm going to smoke marijuana to make my anxiety go down. And my first response is, well, that's great. It's going to work the first couple times, as you've already probably known, which is their usual report. But now you're going to be in trouble because it actually makes it worse. Yeah. And usually they'll counter me and, oh, no, 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 no. And then somewhere in the, you know, within <laughs> a few months, they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so anxious. I'm like, hmm. That's because people who are anxious by nature, by and large, anecdotally in my practice, all, all have come back and said it makes me more anxious over time. Mm. Oh, there's the paranoia right. element of it that just, right. that would just drive that nuts. Right. Even right. a no, even in a quote unquote normal person, let me ask you about anxiety attacks because anx- okay. anxiety attacks and anxiety in general seems to be it, it's the peanut allergy. Right. It's like either it didn't when I was growing up, either it didn't exist, or it existed and it wasn't diagnosed. Right. Or it's been exasperated by current society. Right. W- w- tell me about high anxiety and anxiety attacks, and is that ever? It, does it get to a point, I'm asking kind of the alcoholism question, does it ever get to the point where it has to be medically treated or is it almost always able to be psychologically treated? So good question. Okay, mm-hmm. so so historically, oh, I don't even know where to bite that one off yet. Yeah. Okay, so historically, anxiety has always been here. It's, sure. it's, it's not new. 
Um, it's been called different things. It's been treated differently. It's gender specific over some periods of time. Now it's not, you know, it's yep. trending different ways. So there's lots of pieces to it that's moved over time. So I'll come back to that in a little bit. But then in terms of, um, in terms of anxiety attacks or how they get treated, um, before they had any of that medication, I mean, people did treat them with running, walking, other things that came up in terms of physical differences and like right. eating. And, and so if you look at some of the historical writings on neuroses, that's, there's an, there's an old fashioned term on it. So neurotic things, you know, like back into, like you go back to Freud and, you know, Freud was, you know, one of the most famous psychologists in the world. And he kind of set up the whole thing on if you're neurotic and he was very specific around neuroses yeah. around women. So that anxiety, and that's what we call anxiety now. It's, it's that constant working up and feeling. Um, and that was always treated with talking. Now, you know, that goes back into the, you know, 1700s, 1800s historically. Now, Freud was later. He was in the, you know, early 1900s and the 19, you know, you know, eight, late 1800s, early 1900s. But you have this all... But when you were going to school, when I was going to school, we were in high school. Yeah. Do you remember anxiety, quote unquote, attacks? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. They did exist? Yeah. So... I mean, was, we didn't, obviously didn't call it that, but It was I don't not remember. called that. Yeah. It was... I re I remember very specifically in um, grade school, um, elementary school, people talking about your child's nervous or there's, you know, the child has a lot of tension or it wasn't, I don't think it was anxiety attacks. I think by the time I got to high school, people were talking anxiety attacks. Um, I was also progressively moved in a direction where people were much more, you know, I was in sports psych, I was around people all the time that talked about like those pieces. So I may have a little bit different experience than yeah. like what was happening back then for the mainstream because I remember in yeah. my in my head space of that. But I know that in elementary school it was nervous children, nervous child. You have a nervous child, and neuroses was still being used back in the seventies. Yeah. And I know that that was referenced a lot. But by the time the late eighties, early nineties came around, anxiety and anxiety attacks sure. were much more coined term, and that was. But now you know, and panic panic wasn't used. Right. I would say that probably panic wasn't used as much now as then as now, so that wasn't part of the the system. Um, it was there because it was always in the diagnostic manual from way yeah. back when I can remember, but I don't think it was used as much because it was sort of more for people that really were really over the top kind of thing. Yeah. Now we're able to really specify it and differentiate between what an anxiety attack is and what a panic attack is. Oftentimes people will say, oh, I'm so depressed. You know, and I, and I try to educate people yeah. on, well, you know, are you depressed because, you know, the coffee spilled all over your shirt today? And is yeah. that really depression versus you're really actually depressed and you haven't been able to get out of bed for a month and you can't wash your own hair and you can't feed yourself and it's really miserable. You know, people overuse the term and it becomes yeah. so colloquial that it's, oh, I'm so depressed. I'm so sad. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm depressed this afternoon. No, you're not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't get so, depressed in an afternoon. So, so yeah. you, you kind of, so, so it's funny because when I get people that say that stuff, I, I say, well, let's, let's do a quick lesson in this. I'm like, are yeah. you bluesy? And, or are you dysthymic, which I will explain, which is that mild, Please. it's a mild yeah. level, <laughs> level of depression. It's kind of a daily, you know, kind of, I call it the blahs. Yeah. You know, melancholy, kind of bluesy, yeah. you know, so dysthymia, you know, it's, it comes, it goes, it's kind of dependent on the transition of the day. Maybe you have some thought process that's not so healthy, but it kind of comes and goes. It's not always, it's not chronic, but then you kind of go up through, then you get into mild depression, 
moderate depression, severe, you know, very severe depression, and, and then it's major depression. So it's these disorders that go along the continuum based on very specific factors that make it so. Um, same with anxiety. Anxiety has, you know, oh, someone's got some nervousness, someone's got some stress, like everybody has stress, good yeah. stress and bad. So when people say, oh, I'm so stressed out, they'll confuse that with, oh, I went into this huge stress attack or major anxiety attack. And then when you actually ask them, well, what does that mean and what does it look like? It's not. Right. It's just that, again, the depression word overused or, or you know, I think back in the day, and people still misuse it, like, oh, he's so bipolar. I'm like, well, what do oh, you yeah, mean? Yeah. Bipolar, well, because one minute he's up and next minute he's down. Well, that's, I mean... Right. It's bipolar, but by definition of true psychiatric definition, it's not. Well, this is what ADD did to us. Right. Because you talk about attention issues and it's like, well, he's 12, (laughs) you know, to an extent. Or five. Yeah. To an extent that's inherent. Right. Right. And so differentiating when it becomes a problem, it's the alcohol alcoholism question right yeah do you like to drink or you're alcoholic well so it's so interesting like because we're talking about these different ways of looking at these disorders when when i don't usually see kids under six years old one mostly the main reason is because they can't sit still sit for an hour (laughs) right they can't sit for the session so when i do see a six-year-old or cusping on five six which i will sort of evaluate i get them to come in and i'll do like a 30-minute session Always with a parent because I want to see how they are, and then I want to see how they are without the parent. And then we can, you know, some kids are very mature at six and they're fine. Yep. But I find that when someone comes in and says, My kid's ADD, can you see them? And they're five, I cringe. Yep. Lots of my colleagues will agree with me um, that I won't diagnose ADD that young. Um, I watch for features if the child stays with me in my practice for a long period of time, which I try to aim for when they're kids, you know, because usually there's a reason why they're there. It's not just because they're having a little stress, right? It's usually because a parent or school system has sent them to me to say, hey, we need an evaluation and we need some treatment, um, like behavioral modification. So I'll immediately assume that they just need behavioral modification for a variety of reasons, starting with the fact that they are five. Boys are more prone to ADD than girls by nature, but that doesn't rule out that girls can't have it. But I treat all kids as they're five, they're six. This is, they need to expend energy. And one of the first things I do, this is the same as what we were saying at the beginning with adults, exercise. Many times little kids come in and I say, so what do you do all day, you know, with the parents? What is the activity? Nothing. Yeah. They come home from school and then there's nothing. So from 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, this bundle of yeah. is zipping around the house going, I need something to do. So, you know, I know I that always this wonder is... what the gratification scale is in those situations, too, because a lot of this is about pleasure seeking and instant gratification. Right. And if they don't, their attention just goes to looking for the gratification somewhere else. Right. And yeah. so it goes back to kind of a couple episodes ago where you see a lot of kids when they're not being paid attention to and given the structured activities to exert the energy or whatever, they go to eating. Yeah. Right. So they go right to, or the parent gives them like, oh, here, eat this. Or, you know, as soon as they come home, they have a snack. And yeah. then, you know, then they put them in front of the TV and the homework gets done if there is i mean usually at that there's no homework at that age yep. so you know unless it's like seven eight then we have a little gratifying difference. the senses it's something to look at something to eat right you know, so it's, it's so it's keeping them occupied keeping them babysat yeah. instead of expending the energy that has to happen because if you go back 35 40 years ago let's 
let's date ourselves here. Yep. What were you doing? I mean, I was in gymnastics, so I was always in the gym. But as soon as school was out and I wasn't in the gym, I don't remember ever being inside. I don't remember right. ever like not being running around outside. Someone, I, I just knew that it started getting dark. It was time for dinner somewhere around seven. Yeah, you know, or in the summer or something like that, or five o'clock. You just you were know out. why? Because it's like oh, I'm hungry. I want to eat. Go out and play. Right. We're eating in an exactly. hour. Exactly. Yeah. It's like right. So and that's what parents used to being say. Being able to delay gratification and occupy that time without being overwhelmed by that need for something. And, and I think the key to the, what you were just saying, too, is occupying time with something productive, not occupying time with gaming, sitting, doing nothing. You know, yes, reading, great, but not for four hours. You yeah. have a child who has that energy bundle and the, having that, like, you know, that it's, you know, it's kind of like um, it's anxiety underneath the, the attentional issue. It's got to go somewhere. Yep. So it's like a little, it's like a little tea kettle waiting to go. Poo! And if you can't, if you can't get that move through the body, it just sits there. You know, it's your body's constantly metabolizing chemicals that it makes on its own. If you're sitting on, you know, a 13 year old, if they're sitting on their hormones all day and they're not going out for a run yeah. and people are like, well, they're hormonal and they're angry. Send them outside, make them go for a run, take them, take them on a hike on the weekends up and down a mountain, you know, get, make sure they have a bike, make sure that they're in, you know, get them on, you know, right now zooming, you know, get them involved in a, in a, you know, a, a, Zumba, a Zumba class or, you know, something movement because ADD and anxiety are, they look very similar. That's yep. where I was going with that before. They look very similar and you have to really have the differential on it to know really as the child gets older, and that's what I was saying, is I don't typically diagnose. I watch for it, and I'm mindful of the child who has certain features, but I never want to over-diagnose something right off the bat because if you know, there's lots of practitioners that will jump in and say, yep, it's ADD. Variety of reasons. There's sometimes pressure from a parent because yep. there's pressure from a school system saying, we really want your child medicated. I often tell parents, fight the urge to jump to it just because a teacher that you right. have this year can't handle your child. The, ch the teacher needs to be able to manage and realize, you know, and usually I get involved and I'll talk to the teacher and to the school system and say, hey, listen, you know, they're only seven. We're not going to go that route. I'm going to give them behavioral strategies. And I have really good success, you know, knock on wood, um, that... Teachers are usually really receptive to me talking to them and giving them the as long as they don't have to implement the strategies too much because it's a lot of work. Right. But if I give them a couple strategies and say, here's what we're working on and here's what I've given, they, if they know that the child is doing that and that it's already being addressed, you see the yeah. intensity of the teacher's angst come down. Right. That they don't have, okay, it's, it's managed. And all of a sudden those reports that were coming to me every week for like a month or two you know, all of a sudden start dropping off because the one or two little skills I've given have started to help. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, I would I would say anecdotally, again, that's the word of my day today, is that probably over all the years I've been practicing, 50% of the kids that come in early and young end up probably having a diagnosis of ADD. But the other 50% don't. And right. it's, it's roughly half and half just because they come in young and they're just misdiagnosed with you know, an opinion of the child's off the wall, right? They're five. Yeah. And they're a boy and they want to rough and tumble and they want to run around and, oh, and they're a girl and they're rough and tumble and they want to round, run around. The social, the social. And they probably get rewarded for that at home. Right. The, right. Know, where they might not in a school <laughs> setting because there are many kids, you know, many kids needs to deal with. Right. Yeah.
Right. And and so, and oftentimes what ends up happening is that the child isn't ADD, they're anxious. Yeah. And so that I can catch really quick because the differential in a child around, they won't tell you they're anxious at that age because they don't usually yeah. have the word in the descriptor for anxiety, but they'll tell you about what makes them sad, worried, angry, and it's usually will fall out things that would make people anxious. So in little kids, it doesn't look like the traditional anxiety an adult would show. It looks like agitation. You know, the kid that's all of a sudden, you know, just sitting and, and they and they spill their drink and all of a sudden they burst into tears. Yeah. Oh, my God, I'm so upset. Oh, my God. And then all, you hear, I, I giggle because I had this happen last week with one of my little kids. Something happened with one of her little video games. And she's a really stressed kid. And, and she's just, she's a little, little peanut of a thing. And something happened and she lost it. You would have thought it was the end of the world. And as soon as I started saying to her, hey, you know, did you have a rough day? Did your sister do that? We started to calm down because I was hitting on the points I knew. Yeah. It wasn't really the video game. It was That was just the thing that sent the anxiety over, but she doesn't have a way to describe it. I just know she's agitated. So little kids have it. And, and unfortunately, parents and culturally, there's been a disservice with little kids and, and young teenagers up to a certain point of saying, what do you have to be anxious over? Little kids are anxious. Yeah. You know, pe pe little people are people. And whether you're 40 or four, if you've had experience where you have some perspective given to you from a parent or your world around you that they're an anxious person, you're probably an anxious yeah. kid. But parents dismiss that a lot and say, what do they have to be worried about? And I go, well, let's see. They've been at home with you for nine weeks. You're screaming <laughs> yeah. at them all the time. It's stressful. They haven't seen their friends in nine weeks. It, it, you know, I mean, just keeping it current to now, um, they're eating the same things over and over. They see you every day. You're probably annoying them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, so it's it's a similar thing. And, and and but people, you know, the adult people think the little people have it very easy. And I don't think it's easy for them. And that's not to say that we should make it like, oh, it's oh, you know, they have anxiety, so let's give them a free pass. No, no free pass. Give them a tool or two, but also you have to know that your kid's anxious right out of the gate. You have to have self-awareness that, you know, you can't just look at your kid and go, oh, you're five. What do you have to be worried about? They're worried that you're worried. I have little kids worried about their parents yeah. all the time. And they'll tell me, they'll say, I'll say, well, what makes you sad? Well, I worry that mommy, worry that mommy, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And it's a reality. And when I tell the parent, they're like, oh, that makes me feel awful. I'm like, yeah, my vacuuming story. Yeah. Which lasts to this day. Yeah. Because when my mother would start cleaning, she'd start to go into this rage. She hated cleaning. Right. So when I would hear the vacuum, I would start to get tense. Still happens to this day. Right. When you so hear the vacuum. I see someone vacuuming and I'll take care of that. You know, right. because I've just associated that with the person working themselves in, into an anger. You have these cycles in the house. Right. So you can see things coming. So so now so your anxiety has an association to it, yeah. very specific, and and that started. Well, that's when, just one of the ones I noticed. I'm sure there are a hundred others. But that's but that's super important that yeah. you do know that because in order to in order to have the technique in your adulthood to make that so it flattens out and makes it less encumbering to you, you have to be aware of that. I can't tell you how many people I meet in my practice that we have we have to go through a year or two to figure out one association yeah. because people bury them. It's like, nope, I'm just anxious. Nope, I'm just anxious. Because looking at that would have to really take work. And plus, then... plus, not to get cliche about this, many of these associations are 30 years old, 40 right. years old, uh -huh. right? So mm -hmm. they're not on the 
top of your mind. They're not on the tip of your tongue. This the things you have to dig for. Right. Well, and I and so I, recently I I've acquired a client that um, didn't believe in psychology. He was sent to me from his another provider that was getting nowhere with him, and and. And he's still working with him, but really needed a little bit extra, like, you got to get to where he can believe in what's going on because he's really anxious. He's not having movement. He's drinking too much. He's doing all these things. And so it was more, it was more about saying, you got to trust that these things over time have accumulated. And it's, we, we took at least, I would say it took us two months just to calmly talk about the past and really like and I'm slowing it down because it was really about yeah. let's talk about what it was like growing up and you know and he would tell you know like oh it was great and wonderful and yeah. when anyone ever tells me it's great and wonderful I always go mm-hmm. yeah because in two years I'm going to find out it was not great and wonderful <laughs> I had that kind of thing I always described my upbringing as it was great they just left me alone it's like, I had an older sister. She had a lot of issues. They were dealing with her. You know, right. as long as I didn't come home with the cops behind me, everything was fine. Right. And then it, it took me years and years to figure out that, well, that wasn't really great because right. it led me into some problems. Right. And then, of course, I did the parenting thing where I went the opposite direction. Sure. Yeah. Right. Which is what happens. Yeah. Right. So it's so it's it's so important and, and no parenting's perfect. You know, right. so every every parent's gonna mess up their kid, every kid gets messed up, we all have damage. Yep. It's just a matter of what do we then do with the damage? And it starts with how aware are we that we have mood issues, anxiety issues, distortion and perception issues, or all three, which is very common. Right. You know, because they all drive each other. Um, but but that's the thing is like, what do you do with a kid who um, gets gets left alone or while well, there's the other squeaky wheel in the house or and thinking, well, they're good. You know, I mean, I see kids like that all the time. Yeah. You know, they're like the, the middle child and the middle child's the dependable child. The one that, you know, no one has to worry about because the baby's got something and the, yeah. you know, the oldest has got something. And, you know, there's very specific things about birth order. And all of a sudden. You know, the middle child is the one that, well, they're very self-sufficient. They're very independent. They don't have any issues. But the issue is, is that they don't have any issues right. and no one's paying attention. So then they feel forgotten. Then they feel abandoned. Now they have abandonment issues, but no one's ever looking at that because, oh, they're fine. But they usually don't have any, they don't have any issues, not because they don't have any issues. They right. don't have any issues because they're capitulating. Well, right. Yeah. So the, right. It was so it was more. It was more like just giving that. Like it's a cycle of like. Right. Well, I don't have any issues because I'm not a squeaky wheel. I'm not asking for any help because I've just figured out. How, they've they've adapted to I the environment the of attention. the two ends of the spectrum yeah. to be in the middle to figure out how to modulate. So usually, you know, you see and you'll see a lot of stuff in the birth order readings of of middle children. Yeah. Often are super successful, um, because they've they've been able to figure out how to manage being yeah. in the center and not getting what they need so they have to do for themselves right. they don't have the instant gratification there are the ones that like kind of jump away there are the ones that you know go and do because they don't have any other choice right plus they feel they don't deserve the attention right so they're trying to make themselves worthy of any attention right right yeah. right exactly yeah so it's 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 super important as a parent to know that your children you know especially now in the in the past since March at least, right? The kids are anxious and, you know, sad and worried. And they might not know how to tell you that, you know, parents will say, oh, I don't tell them about the pandemic. What do they know about? Why are they sitting inside with you all day for every day? Why are you home all the time? Yeah. Well, we tell them that, you know, there's just something going on in the world that we have to be, you know, safe about. 
and that but people just underestimate the smarts of kids and they underestimate that kids talk to kids and they're they're talking on Zoom every day or they're talking on their phones or even little kids are now so they're zooming in and teachers I've heard overheard you know some Zoom calls and oh they're talking about it at little and so there's no way that you know they're not they knowing. absorb they absorb everything yeah, people I mean, generally underestimate what kids children absorb. are sponges. Yeah. Children hear everything. This is how they. This is how they learn. This is how they learn to socially compare, to peer associate, to socially norm in, norm out, figure out what's right, what's wrong. I mean, it's all happening, and it's based on what you are saying, what you aren't saying, what you look like, what you don't look like, what you look like in for in nonverbal, verbal. Right. It all all matters, and parents shouldn't bypass that because that's where you're. That's where you're actually creating anxiety disorders yep. mood regulation disorders enhancing ADD or not if you know if you're not paying attention to a kid that's intentionally deficited or anxious and they're running off the rails and you kind of just go oh that's what they're like that's who they are that's you know that's Joey that's who he is and you just blow that off you're you're doing your kid a disservice because you're not really paying attention to that or if you're just slapping on a medication and then a medication to a medication this is the other unfortunate piece of the medication is I'll, I'll, doctors will give a medication, then there'll be a side effect. So then there'll be another medication yeah. to take care of the side effect of that medication. But then that medication has a side effect, so we got to give another one. Now we've got five. Yeah, often from different providers. Yes, yeah. right. Who and have so, no idea what the whole picture is. Right. Yeah. And and so so I have a colleague that pres that's um, like a, a co-prescribing a co person with me. So I, I send him my recommendations for people. But he'll often send me people that um, are on five or six medications at a time, all for the same thing. And I, it's sort of my job to get them weaned off of everything with his assistance, but really psychologically weaning them off over a shorter period of time so that we can get them down to the base minimum so that we really know what's going on with the person because the medications, medications change your behavior. Right. They change your mood. They change the way you eat. They change the way you sleep. They change the way that you exercise. And people don't realize that everything going in makes a difference. Yeah. Sugar, caffeine, sunlight, exercise, antidepressants, bipolar medication, diabetes medication, you name it, it it's affecting you. Oh, a little vitamin D does wonders, as we're finding out over the last couple of days. Yes. I think you answered my question previously about um, what should be medicated and what should be done through therapy and, right. and psychology. And let me see if I get the answer. Okay. The answer is when it's acute, medication can calm it down to the point where you know, a psychological treatment can be more effective. Right. Yes. So it's not, it's never, medication shouldn't be the sole uh, addresser of, right. of the issue. Right, exactly. Just get you in a place where you can sit down and talk about it and learn some skills. Right, and that's... And but people do it, they get on it and they go, they're going to be on it for the 20 years. Right. Right, because, well, because it's, it's easy. because it's easier. Yeah. It's the, it's, the, it's the instant gratification quick fix and it's so, it feels yeah. so good so fast, especially with an anti-anxiety med, that, you know, the emergency all of a sudden is, oh... This fixes it. Yep. It fixes it. You know, those air quotes. So, so yes. So when it's acute and emergent, doesn't mean you go right to the med, but when all else is failing, 
and you know the person's making a good ditch effort yeah. to do everything, right? But they're having trouble handling it. Right, then yeah. you do it. Like if a person's going through, I mean, I have people that tolerate full-blown panic attacks and will work with me for a month or two. If they, And I'll say, you just got to trust me. If you do exactly what I'm saying, you will not need to do medication. And yeah. they'll do it, and we'll get through the woods. But it's that trust. It's the it's the I'm gonna and I'm gonna do. People don't like to be compliant. That's one of the biggest right. issues in psych. Is people don't like to be compliant. They want quick fix and just fix me. Yeah. And and I'll have people say that. Can you just fix me now? Yeah. I'm like, well, I can't fix you. You have to fix yourself. I can give you tools to fix you, but I can't fix you. And you have to do the same work that you got yourself into it. You have to do it unwinding it. You know, it may have taken 30 years to get there, but it's not going to take 30 years to get out, but you need to work at it. And my layperson's perspective here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that there is a parents are dangerously quick to go to these drugs for kids. Mm-hmm. It should be an absolute last resort. Yes. I, that's Well, that's my professional yeah. opinion, yes. I mean, there's so many kids that are, that are dealing with these types of medications, and it's just right. like, again, a, a general practitioner of primary care says, let's try this. And it's like, okay, no. You know? Right, because it was the authority yeah. trust factor. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and it's that same thing as like, well, my, my doctor said Plus, it'll I fix it next week. I'll right. go to CVS and I'll fix it. Right. As opposed it, to putting the kid in, in, in therapy and dealing with this and it taking weeks, sometimes months for right. some gains to be made. Right. Yeah. And that, and that's why there's some, I, I, some of the primary cares that I work with, some of the pediatric primary cares I work with, I love them because they don't do that. They send them to me or they send them to a, a couple of my other colleagues. And that's such, because it's doing a better service for the child first, that they were more, they're more reluctant to put them on, especially, so in the same vein as anti-anxiety meds, ADD drugs are highly addictive. So Adderall, Concerta, mm-hmm. methylphenidate. Methylphenidate is Ritalin. So that was one of the first ones back in the yeah. 70s, right? So methylphenidate is, is Ritalin. Concerta as well is an extended release. But they're, they're all addictive. So there's only a few that have just come out after the fact of all those, you know, Adderall, you know, the big ones, Adderall, yeah. Vyvanse. Um, those are all addictive. And then there's a couple like Intiniv which is really not addictive, and then Stratera. But they don't work immediately because, right. you know, the ones that are addictive, you know they're addictive because they work immediately, yeah. which is why you can give a kid, you know, Adderall, and then 20 minutes later, you know, the stimulant has gotten them so, and has it leveled them out because that's what it does. It's a stimulant. So yeah. there's, it, so here's the other side of that with kids. When you give an ADD drug to a kid, People are developing in their brains and their bodies until they're at least 23 years old. The brain is developing. When you start adding in a drug like Ritalin, methylphenidate, really young, you're altering, just like sugar, caffeine, right? You're altering the structuring of the neurology of the brain as we go. So long-term effects of that are really significant to watch for you know you have to be able to monitor that's why you know med holidays are good for kids and adults on those types of drugs but they're super hard to do that with because one they work really well they make it tolerable for parents teachers and for the kid a lot of times to be productive and calm so it's it becomes the norm um but the problem is is that now you're on them yeah. And now you're on them. And now it's a change over time. And, you know, like meds like Concerta, um, they they weren't made with kid trials. They were made with adult trials. So when you're when you're introducing a med like Concerta into a younger child, which a lot of psych professionals won't do, but then some do, yeah. and they come to me, I cringe a little because 
they don't have the same knowledge base behind the the, the testing that right. they would for something like Ritalin. I you know and, and you have to watch for all the side effects. And once a kid starts hitting puberty, you know I, I monitor because the integrative piece of my practice. I monitor. Oh, they're about ten, eleven now. It's not working as well. Why? Because the hormones are shifting now. Yeah. It's metabolizing different. You know, and a lot of docs that are prescribing from primary care love them very much. They don't watch for that because that's not their specialty. My specialty is to watch for that. Right. And so it's it's this constant thing about, well, if you're putting your kid on that stuff, you have to know that their body's going to change, which is going to change the med, which is going to change their tolerance level, which means it's going to have to move around a lot as they get older. Right. Also, it's impacting their developmental level. It just yeah. is. I mean, there's so many pieces to that. Oh, and not to mention that those drugs have a blood pressure issue to them. So a lot of times, you know, docs that are spot on, this is some of the ones that I work with, I love them because they know... They need to monitor the child's blood pressure. They need to monitor their, you know, their sugar levels because it changes the way the process is. They go through the whole holistic piece with me, and it's fantastic because that's what those medications yeah. do. And they on they acknowledge that the developmental part of it goes into a totally different direction. I'm sure doctors deal with these drugs with young kids thinking that it's a temporary solution, but it, yes. it, it all too often doesn't end up being temporary solution. Well, this works. Let's keep doing it. Right. It's well, like, they, no, it's not designed for that. Well, they, they're not designed for that, but they will in the in the goal a lot of times is and this is what I get is they send to me so that I'm I'm the supposed to be the replacement so that when the drug goes away that this this piece of just working through the behavioral modification when it comes to ADD for instance right we're just working on behavioral modification and feeling good about oneself building your self-esteem so that it stays in place but the problem is is that by the time I see a lot of kids, I don't usually get them right at the beginning. I get them somewhere midstream where the medication just isn't working enough. It's it's still there's a problem. And then, you know, say we've got, you know, say they started the med at seven and now I'm seeing them at 11 and they're still having an increasing issue with behaviors and poor study habits and all that stuff. That's because they just gave the medication and didn't have any structure of how to like help the child not have to be on medication by learning how to be organizational, how to structure their, you know, their executive functioning yep. part of their brain, how to manage all those pieces. They didn't teach them any of that. Now we're starting at 11. 11 is a lot harder to start with on teaching those skills than yeah. it was at seven. And executive function gets highly complex right. at that point. Plus there's the whole pruning, right. the, the early teen, mid-teen pruning aspect of this. Right. So I mean, Teenagers are brain damaged anyway, almost, <laughs> almost literally. <laughs> yes, there's, there's a lot going on up there in yeah. teenage years, right? And that, and that, and to that point, there's so much moving. You know, hormonal changes, all the all the glandular changes, adrenal gland, pituitary gland. They're yeah. all moving, moving, moving through that whole time. Which gets us back to gratification, which gets us back to all these tension issues. Right. 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 And, and so in, in the talk about gratification, you know, executive functioning. So the frontal lobe, the lobe up in the front of your brain, you know, with ADD people, people with ADD, um, that piece is, you know, if you can think of it as having, having like a little fracture in it, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm giving it as a visual, but it, you know, think of it like it has a little fracture in it, like a broken bone that has to have a mending, right. but it's never, it will, you'll always see the fracture. So when you have a 15 year old who has that and at the same time, they're hormonal and they're pituitary, they're adrenal, yeah. all the glands are going. 
the impulse control, because it regulates up to the frontal lobe where the control is for all of that, now you've got even more going on right. to have to control for because by nature, hormonally, now it's impulsivity around sexuality and around other behaviors that are maybe more high risk taking, sure. you know, rebellious, all those things that come with nature of the of the genetic person. And by all means, pick a college and a major that's you're going to be dealing with for the rest, for of, your the rest of your life at this time. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. Make good decisions Perfect now. Perfect time to be doing that. Exactly. Uh, Greta talks about in the comments going back to we were talking about how kids absorb things and she was talking about uh, you should have seen my kids' reaction to the Minnesota death, uh, the police brutality death. And I don't know the age of her kids, but see, this is a, it's important to control yeah. access to this or control sounds. I don't like the word control, but it's be aware of, of access to this type of information, what I mean. For example, I, again, I don't know how old her kids are, but an eight-year-old doesn't really need this in their life to any great degree. Right, and and I, th I think that, um, I think that, I'm looking at the screen. I think that the one of the things when a kid does see it, depending on the age, I think you have to be a good educator as a parent. Yeah. Age, I always say age-appropriate education. So if you have an eight-year-old that has seen it, it's there's an eight-year-old way to explain that yep. and, and explain it accurately so that they understand that this is something that shouldn't have happened. And, the, you know, just in the basic terms versus a 15-year-old where the abstract reasoning is coming in and having a different conversation about, you know, racism, you know, biases, right. what goes on in the world, how long this is, like a more extensive age-appropriate conversation, whatever the question has come up or how the child feels or the adolescent feels at that time. But the, the media outlet, the source of this is not, first of all, never age appropriate. Secondly, no. designed to sensationalize. Right. So you can't let that be the storyteller. You kind, right. you kind of have to dig into that a little bit. Well, and, and I think, and, and I think that's again an, in an age appropriate manner. And that's, I think that's an important piece of the education piece is you know, having you as a parent telling, or you as an adult who's there telling that piece of it, saying, you know, we have to be able to figure out what's happened, and you know, the source you're getting it from, and remember, when you hear sources of information, this is what it puts out, and so you want to make sure that you know the whole story. If you, you know, if you're really invested in wanting your kid to understand those things, and you're allowing them to watch, or not allowing, they just happen to watch, and you don't pay attention, yeah. then you have to be responsible to like educate them or else they, you know, this is where perceptions go and then they formulate these places to go in their head that either are spot on sometimes, sometimes they're not, sometimes they create fear generation and threat generation. Um, but, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I, I, I just know far too many people that have no idea what their kids are watching. Well, or CNN's on in the house. Oh, yeah, yeah, Most of or the day. all over the house. You've got news programs on, and yeah. and it's just going. Sure. Yeah, and right. it's just it's just part of the it's part of the wallpaper. It's coming exactly, in. And it's, right? And, and it's, it's not to say that kids shouldn't be aware, but there's the age appropriate level for it. Plus, I think it's really important not to let the media be the storyteller. Well, right, and yeah. and I think and I, I mean plus that's creating anxiety. Right. And anxiety and anxiety and and again, I don't know the age of the child, so I don't know what we're dealing with, but they're probably related to their own safety. Right. And you have to parse that out a little bit. Right. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't know. You have to know where the child's coming from in their thought process. And, and you know, well, what does that make you think and feel? You know, yeah. if they were. And, and when we had um, 
this first all happened and everything, there were kids asking me, like, well, what does it mean? And age appropriately, I'd answer, yeah. like, well, this is what it means. And, you know, yeah. especially around are we not going to go back to school and why aren't we going back to school? And, you know, there's a very different way of talking to a seven or eight-year-old who misses their teacher versus a 15-year-old who or or 17-year-old who isn't going to get to graduate with their class and has gone through all these years. Like, yeah. it's just very dependent on where their thought process and feeling is coming from. Um, sort of going, like, I remember very specifically going back to um, the marathon bombings. I was at the marathon bombings. I was 85 feet off the first first explosion. And I remember after that, lots of younger people knowing that I was there, but also asking about the experience itself of, you know, what does this mean? Why do people do that? What was the motivation? Is that going to happen to me? Um, all those things. And especially little kids, you know, right. afraid of, don't go to Boston, Dr. Kim. I don't want you to go to Boston anymore right. because they associate, you know, very concretely that Boston equals the bomb and therefore versus a 16 year old being like, oh, my gosh, what was that like? Just the abstract reasoning nature yeah. um, and how that they, they thought about well, it. Think about how severe it is for kids. Remember, 9-11 as adults, yep. you're putting plastic on the windows. You're worried yep. about going to malls. You're worried about more attacks. You just yep. felt incredibly vulnerable. Yes. It, it's easy well, to feel I, you that remember, way. I, I mean, I remember for sure the first week or two after that whole thing happened for 9-11, every time I heard a plane after they reopened up the airspace, I was always looking up <laughs> just because we become associated, yeah. you know, associated to thinking all of a sudden the fear that gets put into us of, oh, my gosh, yeah. you know, and everyone around us was saying, I'm not flying anymore. Flying had nothing to do with it. It just happened to be right. that particular instance. But it's being able to go through that because people buy in. Then they teach their kids, you know, we're not going to fly anywhere. I have a client now that refuses to go overseas at all because she firmly believes since 9-11 that getting on a plane, she'll end up being like that. Well, this, this brings us back to another important parenting principle, which is modeling. And in the yeah. instance of dealing with this news story or any news story of COVID, whatever, kids are going to take their cue from you. It's like when your kid falls off the bike, there's two ways you can go. You can right. go screaming towards them, making sure they're okay, and then they realize, well, something must be wrong. Right. I'm going to panic. Or you can go, you know, yeah. what's going on over there? Right. You know, and have calmness to it, and the kids will feed off that. Yeah, So Absolutely. with these stories again not letting the media be the storyteller because they're not they don't right. want to be calm they right. want to sensationalize everything and, and that's and that's to your point is making sure that psychologically you're making sure you're accurately reporting in an age-appropriate way so that your child understands or your adolescent understands what they have seen from the perspective you want them to have it so they have an understanding of the world around them so they don't fear you know little kids often go to that is that going to happen or they see you know police officer immediately will be they're bad right look at what they did you know all police officers it becomes generalized and, yep. and being able that's the first thing parents should be saying is not all police officers do that this was a few police officers this was a, a, a thing that happened that shouldn't have happened but right. not all police officers because you know how it goes right to that generalized like we do that it's a human phenomenon we have the generalizability yeah. and the prejudice all of a sudden you say all is one Right. You know, it's, you know, people who wear glasses are smart. People who are blonde are stupid. All. It's that all, all, Well, that's, all. The, per that's the whole purpose of the media, taking right. a one story to, and, and, and to, right, making to it a, a major it. problem. And right. It, obviously, it's a problem, but, right. you know, it's more nuanced than, than, than all cops are bad. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, that was fast. Yeah. That was a fast hour. Oh, my gosh. We could have gone forever. All right. So, I will see all of you next week have a great week and and please see me on your daily game face go back and look at some old 
old <laughs> podcast. Old. Yeah, old couple it's months. Couple months. Yeah. yeah, and and or you can certainly catch me on um, your daily game phase from this week and next week, and and all my contact information is up there. And have a great week, Lou.